This morning we'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our sermon series entitled Living Life Ride Side Up, we've come to the topic of forgiveness. So let me acknowledge something right up front. When you're asked to forgive, especially when the offense is large, it seems like you're being asked to live not right side up, but wrong side up. Why? Because you believe somehow that you have the right to hold a grudge. For some reason, you believe that forgiveness is not really necessary. The world around you doesn't necessarily say, forgive, forgive, forgive. But the Bible does. Or more particularly, the teachings of Jesus call us to forgiveness. And if we follow the teachings of Jesus, we actually are living life right side up. This is a beautiful story in John's Gospel, chapter 8. But for those of you who are really careful about your readings, I have to acknowledge something. Maybe in some of your Bibles, you'll see this section of Scripture bracketed, a line at the top and a line at the bottom. And perhaps a footnote in your Bible says, in the earliest manuscripts, this passage was not included. That is true. In the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, this passage wasn't there. And scholars have debated its inclusion, whether they think it was brought over from the Gospel of Luke, which seems perhaps to fit it better in terms of the way Luke wrote. But at the end of the day, what we know is this. Even if the earliest manuscripts don't have that particular story, it doesn't mean that the story never happened. As a matter of fact, I and many others would argue 
that the story is utterly consistent with the words, the teaching, and the life of Jesus. Or to put it in the words of John's Gospel, chapter 21, look, he says, if all the things that Jesus said and done were written, the world wouldn't be big enough to hold all the scrolls. In other words, there's incredible stories that we don't have in every New Testament account that actually did happen, and I think it very likely this one did. But let's think about the story for a moment. Just the story itself and the elements of the story. You know what this story is about? Not really about sin. Oh, it is. Not really about the woman. Although it is. This story is about a trap. Take a look at the text. The beginning of the text says they set this whole thing up in so many words to trap Jesus. What's the trap? The trap is this. If Jesus responds and says, you're right, she needs to be condemned, let's put her to death, two things happen. Number one, everything about his teaching and his character, he is repudiating in that moment. Because nobody would have expected that. And they would have said concerning him, you're really inconsistent. Or if he said, let's put her to death. Let's do it now. He would be flying in the face of the Roman authorities who were the only authority in that day who could put someone to death. If, in fact, he said what he said, he actually contradicts the tradition. He contradicts the teaching of the law. He goes against everything that the devout Jewish believer would have embraced. So what does he do? He takes the road Jesus always takes, and he speaks the truth. Something else interesting about this passage, you may or may not know that most of the time when such an accusation was leveled, there had to be two witnesses in order to validate it. How do you get two witnesses to validate adultery? In the first century Israel, adultery wasn't done on the street. And most of the time it's not now, is it? It's done in private. So the speculation is that if they had two witnesses, they set this whole thing up so they could walk in on the accused. The entire thing was a setup from beginning to end. Jesus' response is amazing, isn't it? Actually, before he really responds verbally, he does something else. He stoops down on the ground and he starts to write with his finger in the sand. I wonder what he wrote. We just don't know. Some people speculate that he wrote something from the book of Ezekiel. Other people say he wrote, whoever is the witness, let him come forward. There's all kinds of things you could suggest that Jesus wrote. Were all these people the witness? adultery? 
One of the early suggestions about what Jesus wrote, really early on, I, I like the most. Again, remember this is conjecture. What I'm about to say is guessing. Maybe, maybe Jesus stooped in the sand. By the way, he went down twice to write, and he started writing. And perhaps he started writing sins in the sand. Maybe theft, maybe jealousy, maybe greed, maybe lust, maybe adultery. Then maybe he stood up and looked at everyone and he said, whoever's without sin, you can cast the first stone. And then he stooped in the ground and started to write names. Maybe the names of the accusers. Maybe next to the sins. The point is we don't know. But what we do know is Jesus looked at those who accused and said, are you ready to accuse because you have no sin? If you have no sin, go ahead. Cast the first stone. If you too are guilty of sin, put a cork in it and forgive. After Jesus had stooped in the sand and written whatever he wrote. He looked up at the woman and one by one, as you notice from the text, all the accusers left from the oldest to the youngest. And he said to her, "Uh, woman, is there anybody here to accuse you? And she said, no, sir, no one. Where are those who condemned you? They're not here. So Jesus said to her, well then, no longer do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He might have said what he later said on that occasion. He could have said this. He could have said the Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to seek and to save those who were lost. Came into the world for forgiveness. But he just said to her, go and leave your life of sin. I want you to notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I know you didn't do do it. He didn't say that. He didn't say to her, you did it, but it doesn't matter. He didn't say that. He didn't even say to her, where are your accusers? Since they left, we now have a hung jury. So I'm going to acquit you. He didn't even say that. He acknowledged her sin and then said, go and sin no more. I think it's powerful because you see forgiveness in the Christian sense is linked to sin. Wasn't, one does not experience forgiveness unless one understands the nature of one's sin. 
You don't say to yourself, oh, I'm forgiven because I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven because I'm not wrong. I'm forgiven because I'm, not sin- I'm sinless. I'm forgiven because it doesn't matter how I live. That's not the Christian approach to forgiveness. The Christian approach to forgiveness, my friend, is you are sinful to the core and you've lived it and you've acted and you've thought it. And the sin that is you is so deep and so grave that it will lead you to death and you will never be raised again because of your sins. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that desperate condition concerning sin has been paid by Jesus Christ. He took it all to Calvary and he forgave. That's the context of Jesus' message here when we understand the whole gospel. Yes, you've sinned, but I forgive you. Sin no more. There are some wonderful stories about forgiveness. You know some of them yourself. I took a look at a lot of stories about forgiveness this week and couldn't figure out which one I wanted to tell. And then I finally landed on one. One that all of you know, but let me repeat the story. The story of Les Miserables. Victor Hugo writes an amazing novel, and then it's turned repeatedly into plays and movies. You remember the beginning of the play, or the movie, if you choose, Jean, Jean, Jean Valjean, a convicted criminal, convicted for stealing bread for his family, serves 19 years of hard labor, and then is given his release. And upon his release, he's given a piece of paper that he must carry with him everywhere he goes, acknowledging that he's been released from prison, but also acknowledging that he's a criminal and he spent time in hard labor. You know when you watch the movie or, or watch the play, that this is a sentence that will keep him on the bottom. Nobody will ever give him a chance. Nobody will employ him, and he's an ex-con. And Jean Valjean leaves that place, and in desperation, he goes to the house of a priest and knocks on the door. And the priest lets him in, and in the movie, there's a, the older movie, there's a wonderful figure who is an assistant to the priest She looks like she's about 93 years old and she's terrified when she sees Jean Valjean at the door. And the priest invites him in and says, eat with us. They sit down and eat and in one of the versions of the movie, you have Jean Valjean, a wretched looking character and dangerous looking sitting there and the older woman who's terrified said, what did you do? And he says, well, maybe I murdered somebody. Of course, she's practically quaking at this point. And he looked at the priest and he said, why you let me stay here tonight? Suppose I did murder somebody. What makes you believe that I won't kill you while you sleep? The priest looks at him. And he says, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to trust one another. 
Jean Valjean has a wonderful night's sleep. But he wakes up the next morning planning to do something, to get enough money to get his life started. And he steals the silver that had been at the table that night, puts it in a sack, runs out the door. You know the rest of the story, he's caught. And the police bring him back to the house. And when they bring him back to the house, the priest greets him and the officer. And they tell the priest the story, this man stole your silver. And they open the bag and the priest looks at him and looks at the officer and says, my friend, you forgot these. And he gives him silver candelabras. Go in peace. Of course, the officer leaves. Then there's a, there's a, there's a conversation between Jean Valjean and the priest. Jean Valjean essentially says, why did you do this? You know I'm a criminal. You know I stole your silver. Why'd you do this? And the priest says, with this silver, I rescue your soul for God. Go and don't sin anymore. Live a new life. Now, Victor Hugo, who wrote that amazing book, was not a theologian. Don't overanalyze it. Don't try to make exact parallels to Jesus in John chapter 8. But you know the point, just like I know the point. The point is he was guilty. And the priest forgave. And his life started anew. And of course the rest of the story is Jean Valjean does rebuild his life. He becomes a very successful businessman. And on one occasion, he actually is elected mayor of his town. And while mayor of his town, a man whose name is Javert, the inspector who used to know Jean Valjean in prison, stalks him everywhere, thinks he knows who Jean Valjean is. He accuses Jean Valjean of being the mayor, which he was. And then he comes to Jean Valjean on one day and he said, I come to you with an apology. We found the real criminal. As soon as I saw him, I knew him. That man was Jean Valjean. His trial is tomorrow. Jean Valjean is standing there listening to the story and you can see on his face his troubled soul. Of course, as you know, Jean Valjean in that story goes to the trial the next day and reveals himself as the prisoner and the other man is released. But before you go there, I want you to remember what happens when that particular officer named Javert comes to Jean Valjean. He says to him, Mr. Mayor, I want you. I want you to administer punishment to me. I want you to call for my dismissal because I falsely accused you and I do not deserve this position. They talk back and forth and as Jean Valjean leaves the room, turns to the officer and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you 
to forgive yourself. That's my command. Javert can't do it. He's a prisoner to legalism and the law. He cannot understand forgiveness. He doesn't know what to do with it. He's lived all his life according to the law. And he ends his life according to the law. I've tried to live my life, says Javert, without breaking a single rule. What he didn't say is I'm a slave, a prisoner to the law and unforgiveness. That's a dark movie. I'm not going to end there, okay? Just so you know. Because I want to remind you of something. First, this, this movie shows us that forgiveness is not natural. It's a divine gift. Second, the text itself shows us that hypocrisy, it clouds the ability to forgive. Unless we first understand the depth of our own sin, then we're not actually able to forgive it in others or to forgive ourselves. And finally, what we know, not from that clip, but from the first part of the story, is that forgiveness brings life. It grants us freedom. On one occasion, Jesus was talking to Peter, and Peter asked him a question concerning forgiveness, and he said, how many times, Jesus, should I forgive? How about if I forgive seven times? And Jesus said, no, not, not seven times, 70 times seven. It wasn't about calculus. It was about saying, live a life of forgiveness. It'll set you free, Peter. I want you to be free from the slavery of unforgiveness. In the state of Indiana, there is a woman who resides here, at least for a time. Her home was Terre Haute, Indiana. Her name is Eva Moses. Maybe you've heard of her. Eva Moses was one of the twins that was used for an experiment during Nazi Germany's medical experiments on those who were captured. She frequently takes people on a field trip to Auschwitz. And not so long ago, she became very famous for actually forgiving Dr. Mangala the doctor who operated on her twin sister. Whenever she forgave that Nazi doctor, you wouldn't expect it, but there was a measure of public outrage. How in the world could you forgive that man? Her response, among other things, was, It wasn't so much for him 
as it was for me. In other words, I understood the chains of unforgiveness. And I'm going to free myself from that. His life is his own. Reminds me of the words of Jesus. Turn that one over to God. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. Here's the admonition from Scripture, if you've been forgiven. It comes from Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, compassionate. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. When you receive forgiveness, your sentence is pardoned. That's the great news. When you enter a life of forgiveness, you enter a world of freedom that you could never have found any other way. In the first service, um, Adam sang the song about forgiveness, and I, I pulled an audible, you know what that is. And I asked him if he would sing it again at the end of the first service just to remind us of what it's all about. And so for our last song, we're going to sing this song again, named Forgiveness. And then I'll pray for us.